on Prince of Wales Island, they were black bears. We did see them. And I did run through the forest once like a crazy woman because I thought there was a bear there, which is the worst thing you can do. Do not run from a bear. And I knew that. And I told myself the whole time I was running, don't do that. But I did it anyway. Yeah, but that was only one time. I was good the rest of the time. I walked. I knew how not to attract a bear's attention. And running through the woods is the way you do attract attention. They can't help themselves. They chase you if you run. Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Over Surviving podcast, where we discuss the ups and downs of our autoimmune diagnoses, but ultimately how we thrive in spite of it. I'm your host, Edie Sahesian. I was diagnosed in 2015 with multiple sclerosis. I've learned a lot about MS in myself over the past few years, but the most important thing I realize is that I am going to live my best life. MS and other autoimmune diseases tend to be a bit of a bummer if we let them. So why not battle back by finding our joy? Have you ever gone on an adventure? I mean, really taking a risk. Jumped in with both feet. Let's do this. That type of adventure. When I was in my third year of teaching, I was really struggling financially. And I kept deferring my student loans and I needed to get a second job. Somebody mentioned to me that there were opportunities overseas in remote places where the district would provide housing and incentive pay and some other financial perks. Well, I didn't pursue it, but I often thought about what my life would be like if I had taken on an adventure like that. Maybe Dubai. I actually have a couple of friends that went over there to teach. Somewhere in Asia, maybe, or even Alaska. Well, my guest today did just that. She braved the fear of the possibility of getting eaten by bears, insomnia, erupting volcanoes, helicopter crashes, and seasonal affective disorder, which seasonal affective disorder reminds me of The Shining. You remember how like Jack goes crazy and I keep picturing myself getting lost in the hedge maze. Oh my. So anyways, Melissa Cook, she's the author of The Call of the Last Frontier, and she writes about her adventure in her weekly blog, MSSymptoms.me, and Alaska Bush Life. This wife and boy mom combines her love for storytelling and the outdoors with her passion for photography. She's on YouTube also on this show called Wyoming Jeepers, officially diagnosed with MS in 2001. Melissa knows each day is a gift and makes the most of every single one. Let's chat it up with Melissa. Hi, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so honored. I'm so honored. I've just been immersed in your content and your book is just fantastic. The Call of the Last Frontier, a true story of a woman's 20-year Alaska adventure. And there is MS throughout this book. So I want to orient the listeners with your story a little bit, Melissa. Would you share, let's start at that 15-year age when you started to have symptoms and tell us about how you got diagnosed and what that looked like for you. So when I was 15, I was having problems understanding language. 
And that was very hard for me to explain to people why I didn't understand when I knew I could hear them, but I couldn't understand what they said. And I had a number of deaf friends in Tucson, Arizona, because they had brought in the deaf children from the school that they have in Tucson for the deaf. And this was the first group of kids that had been mainstreamed. So I had a number of friends that were deaf, and for me, it went along with what they were experiencing. I didn't understand language, and they didn't understand language. So I said that I couldn't hear, and my mom took me to a hearing specialist, and the hearing specialist said, yes, she can hear. I didn't know at that time how to explain, I heard you, but I didn't understand anything you said. I didn't, I was young enough and there was a lot of stress in our home, so I didn't know how to handle that. So MS was once called the liar's disease. And people who have MS are often called liars because you can't see your symptoms. And they couldn't see my symptoms. They couldn't see them when they did the hearing test as to why I didn't understand language. And I didn't know how to put it into words. So it was a difficult time. And then when language was affected again in 2001 for me, it was like a light bulb went on and I was able to tell my mom, this is exactly what was happening to me when I was 15. I couldn't understand language and it wasn't like I couldn't understand everybody or the same person. I would have a student come up and ask me a question and every word they said was gibberish. So then I would change positions and I would ask them to say it again in a different way and then I could understand it. So it was like my brain was turning on and off with the ability to comprehend what was being said to me. And I didn't know how to explain that when I was 15, but they worked me up for MS at that time. So they sent me from the audiologist to whoever, neurologist probably at that time, but they didn't have the same kind of technology that we have today. So they weren't able to diagnose me with MS, but that was the first time I heard MS. And since they didn't diagnose me with it, my mom was just mad at me. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it hurt my credibility not to know how to explain it as a child. <laughs> I see. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yes. So yes. then moving into 2001, what else was going on? Was it just the language thing? Primarily, well, I had vision problems in 2001. So in 1996, <clears throat> I was living out in the Aleutians and I had a student hit me. We had gone up for a high five after we did a volleyball. We had gotten a point in volleyball, went to high five, and he punched me as hard as he could in the hand and knocked me to the ground. And that started tingling in the tip of my finger. And from there, I ended up in Anchorage, visiting with a chiropractor who sent me on to a neurologist who then said the words MS again. And that was the second time I heard MS. But they said, you have one lesion. Uh, we can't diagnose it as MS until you have multiple lesions. So in 2001, I was having problems with vision. I had an optic neuritis attack and I couldn't see very well. And I lived out on Prince of Wales Island in Bush, Alaska, and I did not have access to a doctor. So, well, I had access to a general doctor, but not a neurologist. So I spent from October until June unable to see very well. I couldn't drive. I was a teacher, so I had to get creative. And I had students, instead of turning in a bunch of paperwork, had them do like plays and other things that I could 
judge speeches that I could give grades for that weren't all reading. And I had to have them turn in papers that were not on white paper because it helped. And then when I got back to Wyoming and Montana for the summer, I went to see the neurologist and that's when they diagnosed MS. And I started medication at that time. Wow. So when you were 15, what year was that? Do you remember? About 1982. And you're presenting with struggling with language and understanding people. Mm -hmm. It was pretty intuitive of that doctor to even consider MS Mm -hmm. at that time. So after hearing it a couple of times, did you know a lot about it when you were diagnosed? Really? No. Even in 1996, when I was in the Aleutians and they said MS, I just figured it was a pinched nerve. And I didn't know what MS was at 15. I had symptoms between 15 and 28. And then I was probably about 32 or 33 when they finally diagnosed. But at 28 is when they told me, it's one lesion right now. So they told me also, don't go home and read anything about it because then you'll think you have all the symptoms. So I didn't. I read that in your book, and that is really interesting, that perspective, because on the one hand, you kind of want to know what could happen in case it does, and you're like, Mm -hmm. hmm, what is going on with me? But on the other hand, yeah, I guess it's a lot less threatening if you don't know what's going to maybe happen to you because you don't know for sure. Now, did you have your three boys at that time when you were diagnosed? I did. I did. Yes. Yes, my boys were born in the 80s and 1990. And what was the impact on your family during this diagnosis? When I was first diagnosed, I had my three boys. They didn't really understand because they were in elementary school. But by the time they got to high school, they had a pretty good understanding because I was pretty sick by the time they were in high school. And so my oldest son did all of the laundry and... My husband was very supportive, but when I was first diagnosed, I didn't know if he would be. It's scary because a lot of people end up struggling in relationships when one gets sick, and I didn't know how he'd handle that. He handled it wonderfully. But it was scary that first year when I didn't know. (laughs) Yeah, and that fear of the unknown is a real Mm -hmm. thing. And now seeing you with your husband and all of the adventures that you guys have been on, Mm -hmm. I can't imagine him not being so understanding. And he's such a supportive man to you. I am very protective. He chases (laughs) off all the stress. If somebody's causing me stress, he's after them. Oh, I do that. One of those. That sounds perfect. I love that for him and you. So tell me a little bit about what's been going on with you guys. 20-year Alaskan adventure. You've seen and experienced so much together. How did that whole process of you're telling me I'm in rural, very rural Alaska, using the term bush, I've only heard bush referenced in Australia. And Uh I think of Aborigines and living off the land. And can you explain some of the things that you guys were going through while you were living in Alaska? Well, the way you can define Bush Alaska is you don't have a road to your town that connects you to a main town. And since 80% of Alaska is fly-in or boat only, that's most of Alaska that doesn't have a road to Anchorage, Fairbanks, Juneau doesn't even have one, and that's one of the main towns. Ketchikan, they don't have one, main town. 
So it depends how you define bush. Bush can be defined that it doesn't have a main town. Other people define it because there are bigger towns that don't have a road to the main town as having access by ferry and road. So they add the ferry in there. And we did have access by ferry when we lived on Prince of Wales Island. However, <laughs> it took us an hour and a half to get to that ferry, sometimes longer depending on the road conditions. And to take a ferry means on Prince of Wales Island, it meant going to Hollis, which was about an hour and a half drive, waiting an hour, getting on a ferry that was three hours, and then going to town, having two and a half hours in town and having to be back in line for that ferry. So we left at about five in the morning and we got home at about 8.30 at night to get two and a half hours in town. So to me, that's still bush. <laughs> that's yes. not just being able to drive 30 minutes down the road to a town. That's still bush Alaska. I saw something on one of your one of your many communication outlets that you have that there's months and months that you don't go grocery shopping. So like mm -hmm. the need for fresh vegetables and things like that, you're eating a lot of canned goods and preserved things. What did that whole sense of not having access to stuff, what was that like? Right. Well, we lived in the Aleutians for two years, and we did not have a grocery store there. When we were on Prince of Wales Island, we could drive 75 minutes to get to a store. And after a few years, we ended up having a regular store in the town. When we were in the Aleutians, we brought in a year's supply of food at one time on the barge, not knowing that snake eyes would fly in. But snake eyes was a bush pilot who used to fly in with a plane load of groceries and then it didn't matter the weather. He even flew in in a snowstorm once and he'd land on the tarmac out there, which was really just gravel and unload his plane. And everybody would come with their laundry baskets that had metal secured to the handles so that they didn't break apart. And that's how they shopped was with their laundry baskets. And out there you could get fresh fruit and vegetables at $7.50 a pound, no matter if it was an onion, a banana, a kiwi, it didn't matter. He brought it, but you had to pay for it. And most baskets were about $500 for a laundry basket of food. Wow. And, so and he charged more for eggs and ice cream. I connected with Snake Eyes years later. When I wrote the book, I wanted him to know that there's a whole chapter about him in my book. And nobody in the town knew his name. They only knew him by Snake Eyes. So... I don't even know how I found him, but I found him. He flies helicopters out of King Salmon now. He stopped flying the bush groceries out to the bush and started flying helicopters. But his name is Sam Egley. <laughs> Hi, Sam, if you're listening. Right. Yeah. So that is super wild. Like how much was the cost of living super high then if you're not having easy access to stuff? At that time, we paid $300 for rent, which made the teachers in the two main towns of King Cove and Sam Point very angry because they were paying about 1000 But to get a teacher to stay in Nelson Lagoon, if you're going to charge them $1,000 rent and send them to Nelson Lagoon, they're probably going to leave. So they charged us less money for rent and the utilities were part of it. We didn't pay the utilities. We paid for our telephone. So we didn't have a lot of overhead expense. That is not the norm in most of Alaska. But for that town, it was one of the most isolated places in the state. And they had two teachers 
move in the year before, leave before Christmas. Two more teachers come in after Christmas break and left at the end of the school year, refusing to stay another year. So it's hard to keep teachers there. Why? What's the elements in all of that that would contribute to the lack of wanting to live there? Well, back then it was that we didn't have access to anything. There was no store there. There were very few people. There were about 30 people there in the wintertime. The phone had a two-second delay, didn't have regular TV. The internet at the time was very rudimentary anyway, even for people in the lower 48. Today, they don't have a good retirement, so they still struggle getting teachers. Back then, they had a wonderful retirement for us, but today they have internet and fast speed video conferencing and that type of thing. So people aren't having it as rough when they live in Bush, Alaska as we did because they can do what we're doing here. We can see each other on our video. We can talk and hear each other at normal speaking rates. We couldn't do that when we lived out there. So today you can't. So what was the draw for you guys then? Why did you want to go on this adventure? They had a really good retirement. That was it. In 20 years. That was it. That was it. And most people did not make 20 years. That's why they could offer it because they knew the average stay was two to five years. And then people went back home and they had that great elastic experience that they dream of still today and say, oh, I miss it. Yeah, but I wouldn't want to go back. I wouldn't want to live there again. But yeah, I miss it. (laughs) That's true for me too. I mean, I, I would never trade my Nelson Lagoon years, but for years afterwards, I had nightmares that I was being sent back to Nelson Lagoon for our last years in the States. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's <laughs> it was a reoccurring so nightmare. And it even occurred after we retired and moved to Wyoming, I was still having that nightmare that we wow. were going back to Nelson Lagoon. Yeah, that's some PTSD. I think that it's so brave of you to be out there. And I can't imagine how that impacted your MS and access to things. Like I read Mm -hmm. in your book that you'd have to take your flight and go down to see the doctor and things. Were you on a DMT? I was. I started a DMT in 2001. And I have to say, we left Alaska in 1997. We stayed three years, the two years out in Nelson Lagoon and then one year in Craig, which at that time was a fishing and logging community, and they were a bit rough. So we left. That wasn't the kind of life we wanted to live. But when we got down to Ohio, I was pretty sick with MS, and we knew I wasn't going to make a full career watching some of those people climbing the stairs with a cane in their 60s saying, three years left till retirement. And I was 30 and I'm looking at them thinking, I'm not going to make it. So we went back to Alaska again for the retirement, knowing that they had a 20 year and I was more likely to make that. They also had a really good disability plan. So I encourage the listeners to think about your own situation. Do you have a good disability plan? Do you have a good retirement plan? Because I didn't when I wasn't in Alaska. So I went back. And that's why I went back, because I knew I was sick. And my husband said, we have to go back. You have MS. You're going to need that medical plan. And I did. So you also must love nature. I can't imagine you being up there and fighting the elements and all of that and the insomnia and all of these components like without really loving nature. Is it okay if you see a bear? Do you freak out? Like what? What was that like being immersed in such beautiful country? Okay, so are you ready to laugh? Yeah. (laughs) 
I was born and raised in Detroit. And then I moved to Tucson and lived between my parents. They were divorced. So I spent all my time in the city and very little time outside. And I really wasn't too thrilled when we'd go camping because bugs bit me and the food that we made on the campfire was always half burnt, half raw, freezing in the tent. <laughs> None of that was appealing to me. Right. So we moved to Alaska. The outdoors and the wildlife and all of that, that scared me. I was afraid of the bears. I actually read Larry Knute's book, Alaska Bear Tales, and that helped me to understand why bears attack people. And it actually helped alleviate a lot of my fear and helped me understand as I was walking around in the wilderness, what might attract a bear. And therefore, I behaved accordingly, not to <laughs> attract a bear. <laughs> the only reference I have is The Revenant. And if you've seen that movie, the bear mangles poor Leonardo DiCaprio. And so, uh -huh. yeah, I can imagine if that's your point of reference, you would need a little bit something, something to get mm -hmm. more comfortable with it. So, right. yeah, that's a real change of pace. The bears and the Aleutians are the really big ones. The polar bears are bigger and the Kodiak bears are bigger, but only slightly. The bears on the Aleutian chain are huge. They're like 10 feet tall. They're bear prints that were all over our porch in the driveway. We knew they were there. They were there regularly. And therefore, I was afraid of them. We didn't see them though. They were in at night. We didn't see them during the day. Okay. Well, that's but I knew a they were there. Better. On Prince of Wales Island, they were black bears. We did see them. And I did run through the forest once like a crazy woman because I thought there was a bear there, which is the worst thing you can do. Do not run from a bear. And I knew that. And I told myself the whole time I was running, don't do that. But I did it anyway. Yeah, but that was only one time. I was good the rest <laughs> of the time. I walked. I knew how not to attract a bear's attention. And running through the woods is the way you do attract attention. They can't help themselves. They chase you. If you run. If you're moving, they're going to If notice. you're moving. Mm -hmm. I see. I see. Yeah. So Running I mean, and screaming also doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you have a pretty good track record if you only got one situation. but One golly. in 20 years. <laughs> I mean, I go up to Maine for 4th of July and we're driving up there and I'm gripping the door handle because I think a moose is just going to run in front of the car while we're driving. So I can't imagine being really immersed in it all the time. And, but I think it goes to say a lot about, like I said, your sense of adventure. And mm -hmm. you say that you live today and how you live today really determines your tomorrow. Can you expand on that a little bit and what that means in your life? Yes. Yeah, so I believe that we all create our own luck to some extent, good or bad. And so I try to live my life understanding that what I do today is going to affect tomorrow. If I stay up late and I eat food that makes me sick, I'm going to lose sleep. And therefore, I'm probably going to have a hard time with my MS the next day or the day after. I can usually handle one night without a lot of sleep, but two nights in a row, I'm going to feel it. MS symptoms are going to come back on me. So I'm creating my own luck when I make decisions to stay up late or to eat foods I know might make me sick because I have issues with eating fatty foods or something like that. If I eat French fries for dinner, I'm going to feel sick at night and I'm going to lose some sleep. 
So is that worth it? No, it's not. So I try not to eat those. But sometimes you got to break the rules and sometimes I lose the sleep. (laughs) (laughs) But I do believe that the decisions that I make make a difference in how well I live my life. So I talk about that a little bit in some of my blog posts. My last blog post, I talked about a number of things that I decided in my life and how they affected me. For instance, when I was young, I wasn't thinking about MS or being sick or anything like that. I didn't know I had MS, but I knew I wanted a benefits package. My parents both had benefits packages because they had college degrees and worked for companies that gave them benefits. So I knew I wanted that too. So I got a college degree. I made that decision for the benefits that I wanted that in my life. I wanted a retirement program. I wanted medical coverage. I didn't know what disability coverage was. Big clue, if you have MS, you want medical disability on your benefits package in some way. If they don't offer it, keep looking for another job that might offer it because that's really important if you go out on medical disability. And sometimes you don't get a choice on that. You're just going to go out on medical disability. And Social Security's disability is not a lot of money. So that was a decision I made. Another decision I made was that I always wanted to see a tulip festival. For 20 years that I lived in Alaska, I knew they had a tulip festival down in Washington, and I wanted to see it. Then I found out they had a tulip festival in my home state of Michigan, and I went. And I was checking one off the bucket list, so I was very excited. The problem is, is that while I was there, they had an unexpected heat wave and it was 90 to 95 degrees with full sun and high humidity, which I am living in Wyoming now and it was pretty cold until then. And so I wasn't used to the heat. I brought a pair of shorts and I wore shorts thinking that would do well for me, but I forgot the connection of MS to heat. And I don't know how I made that loss of connection because I've had it for 25 years. How did I forget that? But I did. And so I roamed every tulip field and pushed myself to the limit. And I'm a volunteer EMT today. So I know from the symptoms that I had when I was standing out in that field that I was on the verge of heat exhaustion. So I started heading toward the building where I knew they had cold water because stupid me also did not have a cold water bottle in my hand. And I made my way back to the building drank two cold water bottles and had to sit there for 20 minutes. And then I ended up having an MS relapse. And I haven't had an MS relapse in years. I've been doing very well. And then I wasn't. And I wasn't because I allowed myself to get too hot at a tulip festival after I had already gotten up at three in the morning to get on a plane to get there. So I lost the sleep and then I overdid it with the heat. And then to go home, I had to get up for a very early flight And the next week, MS was raging. And I haven't had that in a long time. So I am recovering from that now, but I've noticed that even just a little bit of extra effort yesterday, I felt it today. So it's still there a month later, (laughs) still struggling, just a little. Yeah, it sounded like a perfect storm. I am wondering now, what were those symptoms that came on as a result of that? Fatigue, a lot of fatigue, uh, a little bit of nerve pain. A little bit of vision issues, but mainly fatigue, just dragging. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of fatigue in my past. Not that you can tell when you see me on Wyoming Jeepers. (laughs) No, she's like here and there and everywhere, (laughs) smiling and enjoying herself. I watched a video uh, this morning, actually, and they're like, 
riding in Jeeps on volcanoes. And it looks like they're going to plummet to their death. And they're just, it's incredible what you guys do. And who do you do all that stuff with? Is that, are you related to that, those people? Yeah. The person in the Jeep with me is my husband, Elgin. Mm -hmm. And then the other Jeep is his sister, Elaine, and her husband, Dan. And we go out Jeeping and film our shows. We do about a 30-minute show. We get about seven or eight hours of video, and we create a 30-minute show out of them. And when we talk about creating our own luck, our next show that'll be coming out, we created our own luck by having lots of tow ropes and recovery gear because Yellowstone is currently flooding and taking out a number of roads and bridges and buildings in the area. This was the very first day of the flooding, and we were up in the mountains next to the Yellowstone Mountains, and it was flooding. We got caught between two bodies of high water. We actually ended up having to be pulled through the water with the tow ropes. If we hadn't had them, we would have been stuck there, and we boated across. Wow. And so that was just pretty recently then? That was last week. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad. <laughs> so you're the here Jeep today. was in pieces. We <laughs> we had to take the Jeep totally apart and everything in it from the carpeting up, furniture that's in there, the seats, all of it had to come out and get dried out because we boated across. But we wow. had a tow rope and somebody was able to pull us across the water. I wouldn't do that again, by the way. Don't do that. <laughs> It's not good for the Jeep. (laughs) It's not good for the Jeep. It's not good for you guys. Oh my goodness. Well, it looks like you guys just have a blast together. Your sister-in-law is a riot. She is, isn't she? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yes. I see her dancing around and all of that. She (laughs) would bring joy to my life if I knew her. I know it. So Mm -hmm. I also see you guys, you have drones and things out there. Mm -hmm. And we do. It's picturesque. And it's not just like going in a Jeep and things. You're really getting the full Mm -hmm. view of where you are. And gosh, what an exciting thing you do. I think most people, when they think of Jeeping shows, they think of rock crawlers that are down in Utah climbing up the rocks. That's not what we do. We're older. We really can't handle all that. So what we do is we take our drone and we drive the back roads. And our goal is to show the scenery on the back roads that other people can't get to, one, because they don't have the vehicle, or two, they don't have access because they don't live here, or three, they don't know how to get there. So we put maps in our shows. In our most recent shows, we started adding maps to help people see where to go. You can be driving down the road, and it looks pretty, but when you send a drone up, your jaw drops. Oh, my gosh, that's what it looks like out there, but you can't see it from your window. So that's why we send up the drone. And in this area, and probably in many areas in the U.S., You have to be careful with your drone because eagles take it as an affront to their territory and they attack the drone. So we actually lost a drone in the Carter Mountain video with it, but we got it all on tape. (laughs) (laughs) You got the eagle attack. Even the death spile, the death spile (laughs) of the drone, woo, going down (laughs) after it had been attacked three times by an eagle that was bound and determined to take it out. And when we found the drone, our son went out and hiked and found it. The eagle had taken out the camera and plucked off all of the propellers 
on the drone. So it was definitely going to make sure that drone never flew again. Wow. You know, they're mm -hmm. smart, these creatures. They mm -hmm. are. They don't want things in that aren't in part of their natural habitat there invading mm -hmm. them. But we're so glad that you take those opportunities to show us because I don't know if I'm ever going to experience that in my lifetime. And it's neat to see, especially from someone in your perspective, sharing that adventure with us. It's pretty cool. It's a far cry from the person who landed on the Bering Sea shores who had only ever been a homebody in the city and went to movie theaters and skating parks and stuff like that, but not out in the wilderness. And then I married somebody who grew up in Wyoming and did a lot of camping as a kid. And then we ended up bringing our kids up camping and playing and doing a lot of adventures. So I changed a lot over the years and I do love to be outside today and doing the adventure. I can't wait. I'm usually the one that pushes everybody. Are you ready? We want to go film another show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to film another show. I yeah. film most of the show. My sister-in-law films some. My brother-in-law has a camera on his dash. My husband might get six clips. I film between two and 300 clips for the show. Wow. It's a lot of work, mm -hmm. but I would assume totally worth it. And I appreciate you guys doing it. It's just something that I can only experience that way. And so it's just really cool to see. And I know that you say a lot of poignant things in your book, on your blog, you're a really talented writer and something else that resonated with me. You said, take nothing for granted and appreciate the grace notes of life. And I think that that really speaks to this side of you that mm -hmm. just seeks out new things. And there are, there is a lot of grace that comes with MS, applying that grace to you, as well as those things around you so you don't get stressed out. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what that means to you, take nothing for granted and appreciate the grace notes of life. When I was first diagnosed with MS, I called my friend Kathy and I told her my diagnosis as I was pretty devastated by it because I, even though I didn't know what it was, I knew it wasn't good. And she told me in the same conversation that she was diagnosed with breast cancer just about the same time. And she was pregnant at six months at that time. And long story short, she didn't make it. So she ended up having her baby early so that she could go into treatment, but she postponed treatment for six weeks so that her baby would be viable. And those six weeks cost her her life. So for me, looking at Kathy's story, I always knew that my story wasn't as bad as hers because I raised my children and now I'm part of my grandchildren's lives. And so I don't let a day go by that I don't take advantage of something or appreciate something in it because she's not here to appreciate her life. She doesn't have one. So for me, her story has been a measuring stick when I feel like something in my life hasn't gone right, whether it be having a bad MS attack or having something happen that I would prefer not happen in my life. We all have that happen. But when I look at how I'm going to handle it, I think of her. She's been a primary motivator for me of keeping a positive attitude and appreciating what I have in my life because I have a life and I've been able to do things in my life that I wouldn't have done had I been given the breast cancer diagnosis and she be given the MS. So 
that was my motivator. The other thing is I read Dr. Brandon Bieber's book called Resilience in the Face of Multiple Sclerosis. I read that in February and I actually wrote a review of it on my blog in February 2022 as one of my book of the month choices. And what I learned about myself in that was that I have post-traumatic growth. And I don't think I would have had post-traumatic growth had I not known Kathy and had she not passed away from cancer because I wouldn't have had that measuring stick to know how good my life is regardless of having MS or how sick I became. I still had the ability to make something of each day. So post-traumatic growth means that you connect more with others who suffer, that you have a greater awareness of your strength, that you have more value for the life that you have, and that you are more aware of your opportunities and possibilities. That's what post-traumatic growth is, according to Dr. Brandon Bieber. He does a wonderful Twitter page that I follow, and he posts almost every day something new about MS. So I appreciate that, and I appreciate knowing or having a term to understand how I look at life. I never thought about it in those terms before, that you're growing from a trauma and looking at the bright side of it in terms of what you've learned as a result of going through something. And I think that that perspective is really strong within you as you consider those things that have happened to others even and mm -hmm. really appreciating. I have a mess, but I appreciate the fact that I get to live today and do what I need to do to have a full life. And so that's pretty cool, Melissa. It goes along with your philosophy that is also my philosophy, which is gratitude. Having gratitude in the things that I have, the things that I can do. Focusing on that instead of on the things that I can't do. For example, I was telling you a while ago about, um, but not on this podcast, about a job offer that I had as a superintendent. And one of the things that I really wanted to do in my life, I wanted to get a PhD and I wanted to be a superintendent of schools. That was my life goal. In the middle of my PhD program, I became very sick with a brainstem lesion that affected the automation of my heart and lungs. And that is one of the very few ways that an MS patient can die from MS because your heart's not working or your lungs aren't working. And I was extremely ill. I took a year off and I took a second master's instead of finishing the PhD. And I changed my goal to just trying to get another year of teaching. I left administration, I went back to teaching. I just wanted to get a year or two or more of teaching experience so that I could help my kids through school. And in the end, I ended up going out on medical disability. So since my book came out, I had a school district hear about my desire to be a superintendent, see how I'm doing today, and tell me to come and apply for a job because they wanted me. And I didn't apply for it because I know my limitations. I know, like I said before, we create our own luck. And I know that when I work a job like that, I will work a 20-hour day on a regular basis. I will put in far more hours than most people will, and I will make myself sick doing it. And I could reopen that lesion that has healed that affects the automation of my heart and lungs. And now I'm not just affecting myself 
but I'm affecting everybody around me. I'm affecting my husband, my children, uh, my grandchildren. If I end up in a much worse case of MS because I chose to chase a dream, then I've created my own luck, in my opinion, by doing that. So in the spirit of trying to create a positive luck for myself, I did not apply for the job and I wanted to. It was so hard not to. I thought about it for weeks because I so wanted to apply for that job, but I knew deep down that I would overdo it and I would create bad luck for myself. And to his credit, my husband supported me on either decision that I made, whether I took it or I didn't. He said, I support you either way. And I'm very happy because then I didn't feel like something was taken away from me. It was my decision not to do it. And it makes a difference, right? If I'm deciding it or if some external factor is or the MS is deciding that for Mm -hmm. me. And I think what you do on a daily basis really puts that at bay um, and Mm -hmm. making those decisions in the best interest of your health. And all of these life experiences have really led to that knowledge and understanding. And so I want to share with some people some things that that came from your book. So when I wrote my book and I do my Wyoming Jeeper channel, Mm -hmm. one of my goals is to have my viewers or readers leave with a positive experience, that they laugh a little, they might cry a little, they might be scared a little, but in the end, they're glad that they experienced whatever they experienced with me, whether it be a Jeep ride or my book, that they get some joy and laughter. And I believe in happiness. Even as a teacher, years ago, I always had a big smiley face in my classroom because life's too short not to laugh. And we did a lot of laughing in my class and I still do a lot of laughing. And it doesn't mean that I don't have disappointments in that superintendent job that I didn't apply for. I do, but I still try to find the happiness and the joy. So with the book and with the Jeeper show, that's one of my main goals is to bring a little giggle to people's lives. I love that. One of my core values is humor. And so bringing a little (laughs) giggle. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) And when I see that from my thrivers, I'm like, oh, yay, because I feel like if we don't have a little bit of levity every day, then we're not truly living and experiencing life because we're meant to meant to really embrace that joy, the joy that comes with living and finding what that mm-hmm. joy is for each of us is so important. Don't you just love it when you have an MS symptom come on, like blurry vision? I'll have that happen every once in a while. I'll get up and I'll walk across the room and I'll tell my husband, dang, my MS is coming back. I can't see very well shoot. And then he'll say, take off your glasses. <laughs> and my reading glasses on. And you take off the reading glasses and guess what? It's not MS. It was just stupidity that I didn't take my reading glasses off. And I have those moments every once in a while and they're just so much fun because then it's like total relief. Oh, good. I'm not having an MS symptom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd rather be making a serious blunder than having an MS symptom. And yes, we need to laugh about it because <laughs> at the end of the day, if we don't, we're going to be stuck in that place of wondering and fear all the time. And who wants to live there? It's okay right. to be there once in a while and work your way through it. 
but to stay in that pit is just a bummer and I'm not going to do that. So from we create our own luck to take full advantage of good things in life, appreciate what you have, post-traumatic growth, focusing on gratitude and knowing your limitations. Melissa, could you do me a favor? On page 267 of your book, you wrote in December of 2014, the only poem I've ever written spilled out of me. It's called Sometimes, and I would really love for our listeners to hear from your own voice what that sounds like. Thank you. Speaking of challenges in life, I don't know, I might be able to read this just nice and smooth, but I did not learn how to read till I was in fifth grade. And then I graduated from high school a year early. So just because you don't get to learn to read until fifth grade doesn't mean you can't graduate from high school early, but it does mean that you miss all of the phonics. So when people ask me to read out loud, I always cringe because I know I don't read out loud very well, but here we go. <laughs> Here's my poem. Sometimes I need a little help now and then, so I have learned to ask. Sometimes I have pain, so I have learned to manage. Sometimes I am lonely now that I am on disability, so new friends I have made. Sometimes I miss my career, so I have learned to write. Sometimes I feel sadness, so happiness I choose. Sometimes I must figure out how to do things differently, but I still do. Melissa, you've really touched my heart today. Thank you so, so much for Thank being you. here. We need to hear where we can find you. Can you list all of your spaces for us so we can reach out to you? If you go to melissacook.us and then you look at social, you'll find all of those links. So with my book, I have Alaska Bush Life blog and there's a link for blog on there. And that is the extension of my book. I write a blog post every week that talks about something that I didn't talk about in my book because I have a lot of people who say, I wish the book didn't end. So this is a way of not having it end. And I also have that out on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And then my Wyoming Jeepers is on YouTube. It's also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also just Wyoming Jeepers. And then I have mssymptoms.me, which is my blog that I started in 2013. The goal of the blog is to share my life so that other people can know what it's like to have MS, whether you're newly diagnosed or somebody that has MS. I know that I was listening to a couple sitting at a restaurant in Tucson, and one of the persons was speaking about somebody else that wasn't there and calling them a liar because they had symptoms they couldn't see. And I don't know that they had MS, but I went home and I wrote the post, liar, liar, pants on fire. And that is also one of the goals of the blog is for people who question whether or not this is normal for their spouse or family member to feel like they do. They can learn about what it's like from somebody else's perspective of living with MS. I also put out the most recent research and try to have a little sense of humor on the blog. And then that's also on Twitter. And I also post it on my personal Facebook and Instagram, which is author Melissa Cook. So all those links are on melissacook.us. Yeah, please reach out to Melissa. And if you'd like to learn more about your core values, gratitude, or seek out information about our thriving community, please reach out by joining the website at thrivingoversurvivingpodcast.com. We'd love to have you be one of our thriving community. Melissa, thank you so much for being with, he 
Thank you so much for being here with me today and keep thriving. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Thriving Over Surviving podcast. If you would like to join our growing community of thrivers, there are a lot of ways to do so. Visit the website at thrivingoversurvivingpodcast.com. There you'll find links to all our social media, my blog, and lots more. See you next time when we chat it up with another autoimmune warrior on the Thriving Over Surviving podcast. Keep thriving. Keep thriving.